Amen. Romans chapter 9. Today's lesson will not bring us to the end of chapter 9, but it will wrap up the main point of chapter 9. Whenever the, the, the letter to Rome was originally written, it wasn't written in chapters and verses, and sometimes uh, you look at the text of it and, and, and think perhaps the chapter break should have been here instead of there, and this may be one of those instances. Perhaps this should be bringing us to the end of chapter 9 because what's going to happen is is the 30th verse of chapter 9 starts a new thought. It starts a new line of reasoning, uh, a new line of argument, if you will, and that proceeds through chapter 10. So we're going to save that for next Sunday and we'll get into that. But this morning we're going to look at Romans chapter 9 verses 25 through 29. And, and this passage contains a series of quotations from the Old Testament that Paul uses to underscore his argument that he's making. And you got to understand, this is the only Bible that Paul had to preach from. Paul didn't have a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to preach from. Paul has to preach from the Old Testament. And so he turns to, after having made his arguments, after having made his points, now he turns to the Old Testament, to the prophets, and he's going he's gonna to underscore his argument. He's going to base his argument now in Scripture in these passages that we're about to read. Now, these Old Testament quotations, they come from the book of Hosea and the book of Isaiah. And they show that Israel's condition of unbelief in the first century was not a surprise to God. This whole chapter has been about how it started with Paul saying how big of a burden, how how, how tremendous of a burden he had for lost Israel, for his kinsmen after the flesh to have been forsaken by God and had turned their back on God and they were separated from God and they were lost. And, and so we launched right into an argument. Well, isn't that wrong? Didn't God call them? And, and somehow, hasn't, does that mean that the word of God has somehow failed them? And so Paul has been building this all the way up now through the whole of chapter 9 to the conclusion that this was this is something God knew was going to happen all along. This is no surprise to God. God knew before it ever happened. His prophets declared hundreds of years before that though the children of Israel would number as many as the seas are the sands of the seashore, only a remnant of them would be saved. Only a, a small portion of them would find the final salvation, the grace of God in their life. So now Paul turns to those prophecies to establish the fact that God's purpose was never solely about Israel as a nation. The nation of Israel was always a means to an end, and the end was always going to be the church. The end was always going to be a spiritual Israel, which consists of both the believing remnant of the seed of Abraham and those who would believe among the Gentiles. And so in answer to the objection that God's word has somehow failed the Israelites, Paul once again underscores the fact that God has accomplished the full purpose of his word in, in bringing forth the church from the faithful remnant of the seed of Abraham. That's how we conclude that argument. It's Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. It says, as he said also in O.C. O.C. is Hosea. Now, 
how you get OC out of Hosea is beside is beyond. I can tell you how it happens. It happens because Paul is quoting from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the the change from Hebrew to Greek to King James English somewhere in there the name got lost. It got changed into this OC. But what it means is Hosea. And so he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. And then here we find again the name of Isaiah in, a, in an odd form. Isaiah saith, or Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath hath left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Amen. So that's where we'll stop. That is the end of that section of that argument of chapter 9. I can tell you this will be kind of a brief lesson this morning, but it is where we are. Amen. Romans chapter 9 verse 25 said, and this is where we'll start. It says, as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. Now, this, I, I, I've been very specific in saying he's talking about Hosea. There's a reason why. This is a loose quote from Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23, where God offered his mercy to those who were not his people and his love to those who were not his beloved. The focus here is on the literal meaning of a series of names. The word call in this verse is, is not a reference to the call of God, but is a reference to giving someone a name. I will call them. Does not mean I'm going to call them according to my purpose. It means I will name them or I will give them a name. And so this verse loosely says, I will name them my people, which were named not my people. Those are the names. The name was my people, or it was not my people, and now it will be my people. And I will name her beloved, which was not beloved. In other words, her name was not loved or not beloved, but now I'm going to name her beloved. That all goes back to Hosea's prophetic mission. And Hosea, if you'll remember, at the command of God, Hosea lived out a very real depiction of the condition of Israel's relationship with God. God directed this humble man, this prophet of God, to go and marry a harlot, to go take a woman of the night, a woman of the streets, and make her his wife. And so Hosea went and he married Gomer. Gomer was a lady of the night. She was a lady of ill repute. And, and Hosea loved her and he, he married her and he made her his wife. And for a little while, the marriage was good. For a little while, Hose, uh, Gomer was a 
faithful wife, and they, they started a family together. And, you know, they bought a little house in the, in the countryside somewhere, and they, they started out living the dream, if you will, that, 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 that thing that you would expect. A man meets a woman, falls in love, they get married, amen, they get a home, they have children together, and the, and the perfect picture, perfect family begins to be formed. But with the passing of time, her old life began to tug at her heart, and, and the old thing that she'd been involved in began to turn her attention again. And eventually, Gomer began to turn back to her old life as a way of escape from the day-to-day -day problems of living, the day-to-day hassle and struggle of her life with Hosea. You know that as a married couple, you know, life is, it starts out on a high note and it's all good and we're in love. And if we're in love, love conquers everything, honey. And if we're in love, we can do anything. If we're in love, we can overcome anything. And and love is enough. But over time, it happens that, that the struggles of finances and the struggles of just getting by and good times and bad times and times of plenty and, and times of lean and times Times whenever uh, there's an abundance and times whenever there's not much to, to get by on, those things start to take a strain on you. and They, they start to wear you down, amen. And just the day-to-day -day struggle of living, amen, you have to find somehow the ability to come together as a couple and overcome that. And any, anybody who has a marriage that's lasted any length of time knows that there's, there's high points and there's low points, uh, amen. There, there are struggles in this life. It doesn't matter how in love you are. You're going to have to face some struggles. Uh, you're going to have to face some battles. And for those that don't have the Lord as their strength, and for those that don't have the grace and the mercy of God working in their life, there, there comes that, that desire to find a way of escape, to get away from the problems, to get away from the trouble. I'm going to tell you the main difference between a child of God and somebody who's not a child of God. It's where you run to when you're in trouble. It's where you run to when you're in trouble. The addict runs to a bottle. The addict runs to pills or to alcohol or to pornography, or to an illicit relationship, or, or, or to whatever other thing that he pours himself into, or she gives herself to something other than the presence of God. But the child of God runs to the presence of God. That's where they find their hope. That's how we make it through those times. Gomer, however, ran back to her former life. That was her escape. That was her out. And so they entered into a period of time in their marriage where Gomer would literally slip away in the night, put her kid to bed, husband settled in, the, the housework is whatever is finished, and in the dead of the night she would slip away. And she would go out and seek out her lovers, and she would ply her trade as a harlot. And then with the rising of the sun, she'd come home again. And once again, she would play the part of Hosea's wife. That sad turn of events was reflected in the naming of their children. Their first child that they had together was a son, 
and that son was born before Gomer returned to her former life. And Hosea was confident that that first child, that son, was his. And so he named that child accordingly. He named that son Jezreel. But her second child, Hosea's, or, or Gomer's second child, and her third child, Go, Hosea was convinced these children were not his. And the names that he gave to them expressed that sentiment. The name of the second child, who was a daughter, Hosea named her Lo-Rahama. Ruhama. You, you can look it up. You can say it however you want to say it. I can tell you what it means. It means not loved. Not beloved. That's what he named her. Not beloved. The name of the third child, a son, was Loami, which literally means not my people. And in the giving of the name, this is what I'm going to name them. That name reflects their status. This one, she's not mine. She's not loved. This one, he's not mine. This is not my people. But what is unique about those names is that the negative nature of those names is derived from the prefix lo at the beginning of the name. And later in the story of Hosea and Gomer, when Hosea begins to prophesy of the return of the people of God to a right relationship with God, he prophesies that these names will be changed. That prefix will be removed. It will no longer be not my people. Instead, this one will be known as my people. Uh, and this one will no longer be known as not beloved. Uh, instead, she will be known as beloved. And ultimately, Hosea's message was a message of hope. What he was telling Israel was God may have rejected the backslidden nation of Israel. He may have turned his back on those that have been unfaithful to him. He may have said, these are not my people and these are not my beloved. Uh, but that status would not be permanent. Uh, there would come a day when that situation would be reversed. Uh, and not my people would become my people. And not beloved would become beloved. That day was going to happen. And so our text today is composed entirely of Old Testament quotes. And what's important about these quotes is that Paul is talking about a principle of divine action from the Old Testament. And he applies it to the New Testament. He's using these prophetic words which were originally given to natural Israel to establish the scriptural basis for the church, for spiritual Israel, and for the inclusion of Gentiles in the bride of Christ. A, a people who were once not the people of God will now be called the people of God. Uh, and those who were once not beloved, uh, they will become uh, beloved. There's a divine principle in action there. Amen. God's saying what you are isn't what you have to be. Uh, amen. Failure doesn't have to be final. Uh, the state you find yourself in doesn't have to be the state that you remain in. You may be living in a place uh, where you are not what you used to be. Uh, amen. But you don't have to stay that way. The grace of God makes the opportunity for things to change. 
Verse 26 says, And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. So now Paul quotes from Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10 where God promised that those who were not his people would become the sons of God. In the original context of Hosea, both of these verses, both of these quotes referred to the backslidden people of God. And even though the people of Israel had lost their spiritual position, they had lost that name of beloved, they had lost that name of people of God because of their unfaithfulness, God promised that he would restore them to a special relationship with him. He was going to bring them back. They were going to be, he was once again going to call his people his people. Amen. But now Paul takes that principle and he applies it to the Gentiles. If God would restore backslidden Israel, if God would restore a people who had lost their status as the people of God, they once were the people of God, but they are no longer the people of God. And if God can reach that kind of a people and say, I can bring them back, I can restore them, I can make them again be the people of God, then there is nothing that forbids God from causing the Gentiles who were never his people to also become his people. Amen. That's the point that Paul's making. If not my people can become my people, then there's hope for the entire planet. There's hope for the entire world, not just the nation of Israel. If God can take a people who are not his people and make them become the children of the living God, then there's hope for anybody, anywhere. There's nobody outside of the grace and the mercy of God. Then he continues in verse 27. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So now we turn to Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 22. And that may seem like an odd change right in the middle, but it's a logical leap for Paul. If you memorize scripture, and I'm sure Paul did, these two passages of Scripture have a phrase in, in common. Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, and, and Isaiah 10 and 22 both refer to Israel as being numbered as the sand of the sea. And so it's a logical leap for Paul to make. Both verses reference Israel as being innumerable. But Isaiah provides a distinction that underscores Paul's argument. And so the next step for him to take is to point out that although the nation of Israel is mighty in number, only a few of them, only the remnant will be saved. Now remember, this is the crux of the entire argument in chapter 9. This is what the whole thing has been about. Now for six, seven weeks now, we've been talking about this one thing. The vast majority of Jews were lost. The vast majority of Jews have been cut off from God because of their unbelief. And only a small minority, the remnant, if you will, just a piece 
of the of the whole of the nation of Israel has actually become a part of the church. And that was the basis for the argument towards the unfaithfulness of God. And so Isaiah's prophecy prophecy pertains to the fact that although the nation of Israel is mighty in number, although there as many as the number of the sands on the seashore, only a few of them, only a remnant, only a very small minority of them will be saved. That's what Isaiah said. Only a few of them are going to survive God's judgment. The whole nation is going to go into exile. The whole nation is going to be carried away into captivity. They're going to be tremendous in number when they go out. But just a few of them are coming back. Once again, we see that parallel between Isaiah and Hosea in a in a the fact that Isaiah and Hosea both gave their children names that reflected the nature of their prophecy. And Isaiah named his oldest son Shir Jeshub, which means a remnant is going to come back. A remnant will return. And Paul's taking a principle of divine action. He's doing this through this whole passage from the Old Testament. He's applying it to the New Testament church. In the Old Testament, God rejected the nation of Israel, which was mighty in number. It didn't matter to him how many there were. He rejected them because of their unbelief. It didn't matter their heritage. It didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter that they could claim the lineage of Abraham. He rejected them because of their unbelief. He, he poured out his judgment and his wrath on them because they turned their backs on him. Because they were not faithful to him. He had passed his judgment on them no matter who they were, no matter the lineage, no matter the heritage, no matter the claim they had to the promise of God because of their unbelief. But he promised that there is a minority there. There's a remnant there. There is a portion of people there that are faithful to God. Now, one, I want to point out the fact that the whole nation went into captivity. The whole nation bore the judgment. Even the faithful few walked through that valley. Even those who had not turned their back on God, where there was this great nation, the majority of whom had forsaken God, and this remnant, this small portion who were still faithful to God, they had to go through the judgment too. They had to walk through the valley too. They had to go to, to Babylon too. They had to be carried off by the Assyrians too. That was just that that was part of it. But he promised before it ever started, I'm gonna bring you home. I'm gonna bring you back. I will restore the remnant again. There are gonna be a few who will be saved. And what Paul is saying is if God did it then, he can do it now. God can and indeed has rejected natural Israel because of her unbelief. But he has preserved spiritual Israel, the remnant, the church, uh, because of their faith in him and their obedience to his word. And that remnant will be saved. Amen.
Verse 28 says, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. That's a continuation of the quote from Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 22. It simply means that what God is going to do, he will do it quickly. It's going to be done with speed and finality. When God does it, it will be done. There's no sense in arguing with him. Whenever the, when the captors come and begin to haul you off, it's too late for repentance. Amen. God's judgment is going to happen. It is swift, and it is certain, and it is final. Amen. And then verse 29 says, And Isaiah said before, Except the Lord of Sabbath hath left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. So for his final proof, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. In Scripture, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is a type of final and decisive judgment. God was long in mercy. God was, was long in, in allowing space for repentance. But when judgment came, God moved with speed and finality. And he wiped out those two cities because of their wickedness. Whenever, whenever the time came, when God moved, just like the previous verse said, he did it quickly. He did it certainly. He did it suddenly. And he did it with finality. This passage that he now uses in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrates the seriousness of God's judgment on Israel because of their unbelief. And it shows the mercy of God in preserving a seed, the remnant out of the nation of Israel. Without the existence of the church, without the remnant, without the spiritual Israel, Israel would have been totally destroyed, would have been totally wiped out, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the point. God has not been unfaithful to Israel. He's not treated them unfairly. He's kept every promise he ever made to them. He's, he's fulfilled every purpose that he had for them. He's done exactly what he said that he would do. And ultimately, he has preserved this in the seed of Abraham, the church. He has brought forth that, that remnant, that, that minority that came out of that lost nation where the remnant of the nation of Israel in the church is forged together with believers of every nationality, with people from every tongue and every every kind of culture and every kind of society that come together and they form a people who collectively were not the people of God but have now become the children of the living God. And that's the point of the whole passage. And that is the, the culmination of all of chapter 9. It's all about the fact that, that God has not been unfaithful in, in preserving a few and, and passing judgment on those that were unfaithful to Him because it was never His desire, it was never His plan that just because you were a part of the nation of Israel, you would be saved. It was always His plan that faith and obedience leads to salvation and that the only way to be saved was to believe in Him and obey His Word. And He always intended that from the nation of Israel, He would bring forth the church. It was always about a spiritual reality. God had the church in view all along. This, what's meeting in this house on a Sunday morning, this is the fulfillment of God's purpose through all the ages.
But he called Abraham and said, come out of there. Come out from among them and be ye separate. What he had in view was a church that would be brought out of the world and that would be separate from everybody else everywhere else. A people who were not his people but would become his people. Amen. Now, I'm wrapping up. I'm at the, I'm at the end, but I, I want to make a couple of real important notes about what we've seen transpire in this passage. Just because you were once the people of God does not mean that you will always be the people of God. You have to, you have to understand that. You have to grasp that. No one would dispute the fact that the nation of Israel was distinguished as the people of God. But both Hosea and Isaiah declared prophetically that God had rejected the nation at large. And those who had once been the people of God were now no longer worthy to be called by that well, that's a serious note to consider, and especially in a world where it is, it's commonly preached that once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you're a child of God, you're always a child of God. My, my friend, let me tell you, if God would discard the people he called his very own, those that he called out from, from all the people, the face of the earth, and said, I'm going to make you mine, and I'm going to show my glory, and I'm going to show my majesty in you. I'm going to give you my word, and I'm going to let my glory abide over your tabernacle, and I'm going to show forth myself in you. Amen. If he would say to those who were once his people, you are not my people anymore. And it's a word of caution for all of humanity for all of time. Don't get so comfortable with the fact that you're the people of God that you think you can't ever not be the people of God. Don't get so comfortable in your salvation that you think you've got it made no matter what you do. And you can live any way you want to live and you can act any way you want to act and you can do whatever you want to do because, bless God, you're a child of God. Don't get stuck in that idea. Don't get the, the wrong impression. That, that just because God has blessed you before, just because he's shown you mercy and grace before, that you'll never be cut off, that you'll never be shut out, that you can't go wrong, that you can't ever miss out on the mercy and the grace of God. The message of the Bible from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation is that God will cut off those who are not faithfully obedient to him, even those who were once called his people. That's the message of the word of God. That hasn't changed. That's not something new. That's the way it was then. That's the way it is now. Now, that does not mean that your walk with God is always going to be on shaky ground. That does not mean that you cannot have any confidence in your salvation. But it does mean that when you let your heart get hard in the presence of God, that, that whenever the conviction of God no longer stirs you to repentance, when you can sit in the presence of God and harbor sin and unfaithfulness in your life and the, the conviction of God no longer touches that and no longer moves you to repentance, that you're living in a dangerous place because it's not impossible for those who were called the people of God to be called not the people of God. 
God is a jealous God. I know we don't like to think of him like that. We like to think of God as a God of love, but the word is very plain. God is a jealous God, and he will not share the throne of your heart with and your affections and your desires with anything else. He's either God of everything, or he will be God of nothing. He's either the king and the only king that sits on the throne of your life, or he will not be king at all in your life. The nation of Israel learned that lesson in a very hard way. Foreign armies marched in and ravaged their lands. Their their sons and their daughters were hauled away in chains of captivity. Their, Their beloved promised land was left behind them, and they were carried off to a foreign land. Their temple was destroyed. Their cities were torn down. Their walls were laid to waste, uh, all because uh, they they had no fear of the judgment of God because they thought they were privileged. They thought they were guaranteed. They thought that, you know, God judges other people, but he won't judge me. Amen. Honey, you better be careful. Uh, You better keep your heart uh, in the presence of God and keep your life uh, surrendered to the will of God. Uh, You better keep yourself in a place where that heart is pliable in the hands of God, where he can touch you, where he can move in you, where he can correct you, where he can direct you, where he can set your way right. Uh, If you ever get in a place uh, where the presence of God can't correct you, you're in a terrible, terrible place. Listen, sin is a subtle thing. Sin is a deceptive thing. It is the patient enemy of your soul. But the end result is anything but subtle. The end result uh, is terrible. In the end, sin will extract from you a price you never thought that you would pay. Sin will take from you things you never thought that it would take. Uh, you can you can play patty cake with it all you want to. You can bring it into your life and you can call it along and you can call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, but you keep it around long enough uh, and it's going to get a hold of you in such a way that it will cost you more than you ever imagined. It will take you further than you ever wanted to go. It will make you stay longer than you ever wanted to stay. It will always cost you. Deeply and dearly. It is both a fearful and a dangerous thing to try to stru- try to juggle sin and righteousness in your life. It's, it's a fearful and dangerous place to try to juggle commitment to God and, and, and chasing after the things of this world and in the same place in your life and try to try to justify and try to try to be self-righteous about where you are and try to try to make excuses and try to reason in yourself that this is okay I can do this because because of this and I can when you got when you find yourself in a place of needing to justify yourself before God you better find a place of repentance it is a dangerous thing to try to cause God to be on a timeshare with your heart to, to be his on Sunday, to be something else on Monday and Tuesday. It's a dangerous thing to try to make God share the throne of your life because he will not do it. He's either God of everything or he's God of nothing. Don't mistake his patience and his long suffering 
for his approval. Just because God is slow to anger does not mitigate the fact that his anger is real. And his judgment when it comes is both swift and final. Don't, don't get lulled to sleep by the fact that, that God's judgment has not yet come. This is why Paul cites Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we have to be aware of the quickness and the finality of the judgment of God when it comes. And we need to be aware of the fact that it's dangerous to flirt with sin. It's dangerous to flirt with unbelief and unrighteousness in our life. It's dangerous to play games with God. Because while he is long-suffering, and while he is merciful, and while he is patient, we have to be reminded that if we don't come to a place of repentance before it's too late, his judgment is certain. It's settled. What was once his people can very quickly become not his people if we turn our back on him and walk away from his grace and his mercy. So we have to be compelled at any cost to remember that before it is too late, we have to keep our heart right with God. We have to stay in a place of surrender to him. The second thing that needs to be noted here is that there's a promise here that cannot be ignored. Just as surely as that which is called my people can become called not my people, then it's also true that that which is called not my people can become my people. Amen. They can become the children of the living God. And there is hope in this message. There's hope in in this passage of Scripture, just because one is cut off from God, just because you find yourself in a place where the mercy of God is run out and the judgment of God is being poured out, it doesn't mean it's too late. It doesn't mean you can't change. It doesn't mean that the grace of God cannot be real in your life. It does not mean that your condition has to be permanent. God's grace has made a way where there seemed to be no way, and that which was not the people of God can become what Paul called the children of the living God. Uh, Amen. That way has not changed from Paul's day to this. Uh, Amen. If you're going to find your way back to the grace of God, you do it the same way today as the the rebellious Jews had to do it then. It comes by faith and obedience to the word of God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a first step away from, from perishing. That's a first step away from falling under the judgment of God. you got to come to a place of repentance. That was true when he pledged to save a remnant from Israel. It took repentance to be a part of that remnant. And it's true today. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, it starts with simply repenting. Amen. No matter where you are on that cycle, no matter where you are in your life and your walk with God, No matter if you are just drifting away or if you find yourself in a place where you're so distant from God, you don't remember what it is to feel the move of God in your life. The key to changing everything is in repentance. No 
matter how dark the day is, no matter how godless the culture is, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how impossible the odds you may be up against, God's going to have a church. He's going to have a remnant. He's going to have a people that were once not his people who are now known as his people. And that people are going to become his bride by virtue of his grace, which is received in an altar of repentance. Amen. Would you stand with me? There will be a people. There will be a remnant that will be saved. There will be a people that will be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light that will show forth his glory and his majesty that will humbly proclaim we we were once not the people of God. Oh, my goodness. I hope that we never lose the fascination of what that means. You see, the problem with the Jewish nation was that they, Brother Ryan, if you'd come play me something, sorry. The problem with the Jewish nation is that they, they lost sight of how special it was to be distinguished as the people of God. They decided it was, it was just their right. They, they, just, they deserved that. You, God don't owe you anything, man. You don't deserve anything from God. Those people, that remnant that will be saved, they've always known, I was once not the people of God. I was once far from him. Once I was lost in the pit of despair. Once I was trapped in a boggy, miry clay. He reached down. He made something out of nothing. He made something good out of something that was so bad. He took that which was ruined by the by the, the sin and ruined by the rebellion, ruined by uh, the, 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 the things of this world, and he changed it. He transformed it. He took that which was a vessel of wrath, and he made it into a vessel of mercy. The people that walk through heaven's door one day will be a grateful people who will be able to lift their hands and say, I didn't deserve it. I wasn't worthy of it. But here I stand. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Amen. He has made me brand new. He has given me hope when I didn't have hope. He's given me purpose when I had no purpose. He has shown me his tremendous mercy in my life. There will be a church in this world, in this hour, that will testify of the mercy and the grace of God that will be able to say, I didn't deserve it, but he loved me. The whole point of that testimony is this. If he loved me, he can love you too. That's our call. To reach the lost world with a declaration. Listen, if he can take me and he can make me a vessel of mercy, then there's nobody outside of his reach. There's nobody outside of the realm of his grace and mercy. There's nobody that he can't touch. There's not a life. There's nowhere is there a life that, that he can't transform. This morning, 
We are the church of the living God. I'm asking you just to come and find a place of prayer for a few moments. And I know I know it's a little different this morning. And I know that, that I'm not necessarily calling you to a place of repentance as much as if you're in this place and you find your heart drifting from God, I am most certainly calling you to repentance. But more than anything, I'm speaking to the church right now, and I'm asking you just to come and say, Lord, would you restore to me the wonder of my salvation? Would you restore to me the wonder of what you've done in my life? Would you restore to me, God, the wonder of the grace and the mercy of God? Don't let me get complacent. Don't let me get comfortable. Don't let me get in a place where I think that that somehow I'm owed this or somehow I I just get this because I deserve it. Uh, Let me remember, God, where you brought me from. 